All right, everyone, please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and today we are going to begin in verse 17. As you're turning there, I just want to share with you something that happened to me the other day. Actually, a couple of weeks ago, I was driving my white minivan on the Wantaw Parkway right here, and I was traveling to pick up Gary for our Tuesday prayer meeting. And as we were going, I, I just made a quick phone call to him. I had my earbuds in and made a call to him saying, hey, I'm on my way to pick you up. I'll be there in about 15 minutes. And then you know, click, hung up, and then all of a sudden I heard this boom. And I, I immediately assumed I must have run over something. So I looked into my rearview mirror and I saw something flying way up into the air and then coming down and shattering into a trillion pieces on the ground. And I still, for a moment, assumed that I had hit something. So I, I took out my earbuds, and I began to pull over to the side of the road, and I realized, as soon as I took out my earbuds, the sound in my van was very different. It's because the back window, the rear right vent window on my van, the entire unit just blew off of my van. And it flew way up into the air, and I'm very thankful there was no one around because that could have done a lot of damage to any other car. In fact, the only other vehicle that I could get was a police officer who was parked on the side of the road who definitely saw it, but thankfully he didn't do anything about it at the time. I will say, thankfully it is fixed now, but it was a pretty shocking experience. One of the common features of Paul's letters is a tendency to conclude with rapid-fire commands, just one after the other after the other. And it's a very staccato form of teaching. These commands are often incredibly straightforward, and Paul offers little to no explanation. He simply says, here's what you're supposed to do, now do it. Let me offer you a couple of examples from other books outside of 1 Timothy. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13 and 14, for example, says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Do you feel the rapid nature here of these commands? Ba-ba, 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 one after another. Here's another sample from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul writes, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now for those who are counting, that's 14 commands in 85 words. That is certainly linguistic efficiency at its finest. And the reason Paul can be so concise is that he has already done the hard work of establishing the foundation for all of these commands throughout the letter. Similarly, today what we are going to do is we are going to cover a large swath of seemingly disconnected commands at the end of 1 Timothy. However, as you hear them, all of these commands should feel familiar as these are just the blooming flowers of the seeds that were planted earlier on in this book. So today we are going to be doing much more of a wide study than a deep study, and just like the text, it might feel a little bit disjointed. The transition points between our shifting here is going to be admittedly quite abrupt. It's almost like one of those variety shows, you know what I'm talking about, where they transition and say, well, now it's time for something completely different. That's what today is going to be like. 
And just like today's text, our train today is going to roll through each station pretty rapidly. So, without further ado, please follow along as I read beginning in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. It says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing." He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content." But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's pray. Father God, now as we come before this very rich and varied text, we pray that today you would give us not only intellectual insight into your word, but that you would give us true belief in your word, that we would see the glory of Calvary, we would see the worthiness of Jesus Christ, your son, and that would transform our lives. Just as Paul reveals in this passage, there are so many aspects of our lives that need your direction and guidance and attention, and God, we pray that we would not ignore those things, but that we would embrace them, that we would take these commands to heart, that we would follow after you and display our love for you by obeying them. God, we thank you that Jesus Christ is our good Savior who gives us good commands for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, our approach today is going to be to move rather rapidly through these commands. And admittedly, we're not going to mine out every bit of truth or application available in this passage. Instead, what we're going to do is consider seven categories of commands and see how they relate to us today. So here's our roadmap of seven points for this morning. 
These are the categories that we will consider. First, we'll look at church leaders. And secondly, we'll look at discipline. Third, we'll look at alcohol. Fourth, hidden sin. Fifth, servants and masters. Sixth, teaching godliness in the church. And seventh, and finally, money. The first category of commands that we find in our text today is regarding how the church is relate to, to relate to its leaders. Now, this should not be surprising to anybody because roughly half of this book has been about the purpose and criteria and limitations of church leadership. So now there are a few final details that Paul needs to address. See, the argument here is about financially supporting pastors in verses 17 and 18. It says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. In this book, honor has been used multiple occasions to speak of financial support. And the simple message being given to the congregation is that it is their responsibility to pay their pastor. And Paul gives both an Old Testament explanation for this requirement and a grounding for this requirement as we see it in the pages of God's Word given through Moses. So, for example, in verse 18 it says, For the Scripture says... You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, I'm going to admit, there are occasions when being a pastor is awkward. Now, I don't like preaching about money ever. I do it whenever it's in the text, and I do that because I believe God's Word teaches us about being faithful with our money, and we need to know that, and you need to know that. But I particularly don't enjoy to preach when this is about paying your pastor. It is honestly awkward. And I certainly realize the position I am in by standing here and saying, the Bible says it is your job to pay me. That is awkward. However, it is no less true. And I want you to see the reason why it is true according to this text. Paul provides two proofs. He first quotes from Deuteronomy 25 verse 4, and he uses the illustration of an ox trampling out grain. I want you to get the imagery here. I want you to have in your mind's eye the picture that he's drawing. In those days, livestock was used not only as food, but also in the production of food. We have replaced livestock and their purpose in the production of food with modern machinery. But if you wanted in those days to turn grain into flour, what you, you would usually do is you would employ the work of a beast of burden like a donkey or an ox, and you would tie them to a stick that was connected to a millstone that they would walk around in circles, and you would throw some grain under this stone, and they would move a large round rock over them in order to crush them into powder that could be used for food. Now, although it's not flattering, that is the image that Paul is making of pastors. Their job is to be the ox. Their job is to do the hard work so that you can eat. Not physical food. I am not a chef. Unless you consider Pop-Tarts and cereal to be fine dining, you will not enjoy my culinary capabilities. But my job is to feed you nonetheless. I feed you with the Word of God. And Jesus told Peter, and he being the chief apostle... He tells him, what is he to do? Feed my sheep. My responsibility to you is to read and to study and to know and to understand the word of God so that I can turn around and provide you with the highest possible standard of a spiritual meal. 
Sunday sermons and Tuesday Bible studies and Wednesday night worship and community groups and parenting classes and men's breakfasts and daily shepherding notes, those require study and they require the work of trampling out the grain so that you might have food to eat. There are some people who are uniquely gifted to work a full-time or part-time job and still pastor. I have known many people who do that. However, I have never seen anyone be excellent as a preacher and a pastor while also holding another job. Something has to give somewhere. We do see Paul take up a job of tent making while he's in Corinth. He does that between a year and two years. We're not exactly sure how long. But what we also see is that as soon as he is financially capable of being supported by the church, he immediately quits that job and goes back into full-time ministry. Why? Because it is better for the church that he spends his time trampling out the grain. It's good for them to have somebody constantly and faithfully striving to show them Christ. And the other reason given for supporting the pastor is actually a quote from Luke chapter 10, verse 7, which is probably an allusion Jesus is making back to Leviticus 19, <clears throat> 19 verse 13, which simply says, a worker is worthy of his wages. And so what Paul basically is saying to the church is, I want you to understand something. You might not always understand what your pastor is doing, but you need to understand that his job is real labor. It's an actual job. Now, I think it's important for me to say that I am incredibly thankful for the way that this church has loved and supported my family, and I observed the way that Gateway loved and supported the Furnace family before we were ever here. And it is clear to me that this is a command that you have received well. It's important for me to commend you to the way that you have honored the Lord by following these commands. But I also want you to see here how he speaks about the church and how they are supposed to handle a pastor moving forward if there are issues with the pastor. So we're going to stop talking about money, thankfully, and now we're going to talk about something even more awkward, what happens when the pastor falls into sin. Look again at verse 19. It says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now this is not a new idea in Scripture. This is something that was understood in the Old Testament as part of normal court proceedings. In fact, if you remember when Jesus was on trial, there was a discrepancy, there was a problem because they couldn't get these two witnesses who heard something to agree on what Jesus said. Therefore, that's another reason why his trial should have been thrown out of the courts because there were not any to come together and condemn him. It was required to have at minimum two people to substantiate a claim. Nobody could be found guilty on one person's testimony. So, let me first make clear what this does not mean in regards to elders. It does not mean in any way that elders are above the law. It does not mean that they are given more leash to, to go out and sin. Rather, this rule is put into place because of the extreme damage that can be done to a congregation when a false accusation is made by a single disgruntled person. So, there are two clear extremes to avoid. On the one hand, do not consider elders to be incapable of sin or above the point of rebuke or above church discipline. I remember a time when I was growing up, there was an issue with a well-known pastor, um, nationally known pastor, and I remember pointing out that extreme sin to an adult in my church. And that adult responded to me by telling me that I should never talk like that. I should never speak negatively about that person. I should never point out his sin. Why? Because he said, I should never raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. 
Let me be clear, harboring or condoning sin is never something that God requires or desires. That's one extreme to avoid. The other extreme is to avoid the quick-triggered response to a single accusation. Cancel culture is not new. It has certainly taken on new forms, but it has been around for the ages. If there is an accusation of any kind of sin, there should be an investigation into whether or not it is legitimate. But it should not move to public rebuke unless it can be corroborated. Speaking of church discipline, that's actually the second category that we're going to look into today. So as I said before, this train is moving through the station quickly. Let's consider now how Paul speaks to the aspect of church discipline. Now, we've spoken a good deal about church discipline in 1 Timothy so far. We're not going to dwell on it too long, and Paul doesn't dwell on it too long because he has already hammered it extensively in this book. But there are a few unique things that Paul points out in these verses today. Notice he says in verse 20 and 21, "...as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear." In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Now, notice one of the purposes of church discipline. It is that by calling out sin, we cause the rest of the church to stand in fear. One of the biggest lies that I have ever heard told by the most people is the lie that says, you know, I really just don't care what people think about me. I do not believe that at all. Everyone cares what other people think about them. It is absolutely not true from anyone that has ever said that to me. In fact, during my years as a youth minister, I would often hear students say these words, and it was interesting because often the students that would say this the loudest were the ones that were also clearly, by their appearance, trying the hardest to fit in with whatever category of people they were invested in. Now, what they mean, I think, when they say, I don't really care what people think of me, what they mean is, I care what my group thinks about me, I don't really care what anyone outside of that group thinks of me. But everyone cares about their reputation. Everybody desires to blend into their desired crowd. Nobody wants their sin to become public. You don't, I don't, nobody does. Everyone that you have ever met has a vested interest in their own reputations. So when someone refuses to repent... What is the church to do? They are to take it to the congregation. They are to tell the church, as Jesus says. And it is to be put in front of the entire body. And what does that do? It causes everyone to be reminded that God is very serious about sin. And he loves your repentance and your growth and your sanctification more than he loves your reputation. But Paul also makes clear that when we are going through that process of church discipline, it has to be done without any kind of partiality or prejudgment. Each church discipline situation is unique, and it is delicate, and it is to be handled with love and compassion and without any hint of favoritism. That means you do not judge somebody based upon any other kind of criteria than whether or not they have committed this sin. Train's got to keep rolling through the station, so now we move to our third section of the day, which contains various personal commands made to Timothy. And we're going to very uh, briefly skim the first three, because we've actually already spoken about these back in chapter 1 quite extensively. We find those commands in verse 22. 
He says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, which means making somebody an elder, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Now, although these are being directed at Timothy, these commands certainly encompass our lives as well. They are directives to manage your life, to make them free of snares of the evil one that can sometimes even be set by those within your local church. He says, don't join in their reindeer games. Keep yourself pure. Paul then adds a simple parenthetical and personal command for Timothy in verse 23, which says something about alcohol, which is our third category of commands for the day. He says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Okay, this is clearly a personal comment to somebody who is having digestive issues, and he's communicating directly to Timothy. So what does this command have to do with you? Well, in the one sense, nothing, because you are not the one currently experiencing these stomach issues. It is a bit of medical advice from one friend to another that we are listening in on. On the other hand, it is placed here by God and it is spoken by the Holy Spirit because this information is profitable for you. It is used for teaching you. And so what I'm going to do for just a moment is to see how this verse helps us to understand and to navigate some of the minefields that have been built up around the issue of alcohol in the church for centuries. In our nation... We have a strange history with alcohol compared to most places in the world. And that is because from 1920 until 1933, it was illegal to produce or to sell or to consume alcohol here in America. And of course, we know how that worked out. But ever since that time, and even before that time, the church has struggled with how to teach about alcohol. That is a sad thing because the Bible seems to be pretty clear on this issue. So let's set down some guidelines. First, drinking alcohol is clearly not a sin. Jesus made wine. Paul told Timothy to drink wine. And in Isaiah, it even speaks of heaven with the metaphorical imagery of it flowing with wine. So wine is not the issue. But the Bible is also very clear that drunkenness is sin and it is an issue. So let me be very clear. There are some people in this room that should never, ever touch a drop of alcohol again for the rest of their lives. Your past has proven that you do not have the self-control to know where the line is and how to avoid crossing it. There are some people, because of their lack of self-control and the sin of their past, who should avoid at all costs ever coming near a drop of alcohol. That may be you. And there are others in the room who should avoid alcohol because it is clearly a stumbling block to someone in your circles that you love. Maybe it's your spouse who has a history of alcoholism. Don't bring home a bottle of wine or a six-pack of beer and put it in your fridge because in that case, what you are doing is damaging to their soul. You are leading them into temptation and potentially bringing them to a place of great danger. So I personally fall into this category. I I do not drink and I avoid alcohol being in my house, not because I personally have a history of problems with it, nor because I think I would have a problem with it myself, but because I do not ever want to be a stumbling block to anyone who has that struggle. 
We invite people into our house constantly, and I never want somebody who has a struggle with that to open my refrigerator and see something that he would then get into his mind, that is now okay, and then walk out of my house and into the 7-Eleven and begin falling back into a lifestyle pattern of sin. I never want to put a stamp of approval on something that will harm anyone else. And maybe that is where you stand today, where you are in a position where your abstinence will benefit others. That's what we call loving the weaker brother. You have absolute freedom in Christ to love others. And this is one of the ways that you can love others through abstaining. And I will also say there are others in this room who should have no problem with the wise, moderate consumption of alcohol. And I do not ever want to stand in this pulpit and bind your conscience where the Scripture does not. However, I will say there are far more dangers than delights that will come from drinking alcohol. And I urge you to be cautious. Most people do not realize when they are reaching or crossing the line. So whether you eat or drink, be sure that what you are doing is being done to the glory of God. And here we go. The train just keeps rolling. Ba -ba 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 -ba. We move forward now to our fourth category of focus, hidden sin. Now we find these words in verse 24. It says, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So, the other day I was driving, and my entire window unit popped off of my van. To be honest, I didn't even know that could happen. I had never in my life imagined that this would occur to my vehicle while I was driving. And I was shocked, so I took it to an auto glass place, and I was trying to get it repaired, and I asked the guy, I said, is this normal? I mean, like, does this, norm does this happen all the time? Because he didn't seem surprised by this at all. And he said, well, not often, but it does happen on occasion. I've certainly seen this before. You see, here's the problem. The entire window unit, it's just glued on to the van. It's just put on there by an adhesive, and so something happened to the glue to make it come loose. Maybe it was just not put on the right way originally. Uh, maybe it got a little bit of water damage in there that created just enough of a gap, and so when the wind caught it just right, it ripped the rest of it off the vehicle. But the point is, it didn't just happen. It had been happening. It was in the process of happening for a very long time. But nobody knew it. Nobody could see it. I had no idea, and I drive it every day. It was just some kind of a, a problem simmering underneath the surface until one final gust of wind brought the problem to light in a dramatic fashion. Sometimes sin is hidden for a while. Judas was undercover for three years. It wasn't known to the others outside of Christ what he was doing by stealing money from them or by eventually betraying Jesus. But according to Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. Part of the reason for being slow with the training and the establishing and the laying on of hands on leaders is because there needs to be a proven track record of faithfulness. But I also want you to see that the opposite of this is also true. It's not just that secret sin can eventually be exposed, like we see with Judas or with Achan or with Ananias and Sapphira or others, but also hidden good that is done will also come to light, and people will begin to see the sanctification process at work in your life, like with people such as Barnabas. When someone lives a life of godly obedience and hospitality and generosity and kindness, 
people start to notice. And even when someone is not waving their own flag or shouting out their own accomplishments, the proof of sanctification can still be seen. And that is what Paul is getting at in verse 25 when he says, So also good works are conspicuous. They're visible, they're noticeable, they're obvious. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Look, you might go to your grave having done many great things, doing many good works that no one will ever know about on this earth. But according to Paul, every one of them will become known. Your works will be observed. Now we jump into our fifth category of commands in today's text. Look with me to chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now, I think it's important for us to clarify the dynamics at play in this command. Don't think about this in relation to slavery in the American South before the Civil War or the slavery of the Israelites in uh, Egypt to Pharaoh. This is much more similar to Downton Abbey. Think you've got the upstairs people and you've got the downstairs people. And he's saying, okay, we've got some of you in the church who are upstairs people and we've got some of you who are downstairs people who serve them their breakfast and who help them figure out which clothes to wear in the morning. Now, you guys have a relationship that needs to be understood and worked out. And the point that Paul is trying to make is how one is to relate to the other in terms of the servant loving their masters and living appropriately for them. And being that nobody in this room is a servant or has a servant, I'm going to try my best to bring this this forward into our context today. So imagine yourself before you were saved. And now imagine that unsaved you got a job working down the street at a bagel shop. And imagine that your bagel boss was not a Christian. And imagine that he was a hot-headed, unfriendly, rude, and belligerent boss. And now imagine that both you, unsaved you, and unsaved bagel boss show up at Gateway Church, and you hear the gospel, and you both get saved. And you spend all Sunday afternoon together reading the Bible and praying and thanking God that he has given both of you new life in Christ. And then Monday morning rolls around and you walk into your bagel job as a new person and your bagel boss is also a new person and now you are equals in Christ. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. You you are equals. And so you walk in, new creations. How does that affect your working relationship? How are you supposed to work together? Are you to view your boss as a new chum instead of your boss? Well, we have fellowship in Christ, so... I'm going to take advantage of this connection, and I'm just going to be lazy. We'll let all of those unsaved people do all the work, and I will just kind of sit around and do nothing. Well, absolutely not. Simply put, your boss is still your boss, and his job is still to give you commands, and you are still to follow them. However, now, he says, you are actually to work even harder and more skillfully and more cheerfully because the change that occurred not only in you but in them. Paul notes, you can do this more joyfully knowing that when you make your boss money, you are bringing a benefit to someone who is beloved in the kingdom. You are helping someone who is part of God's family. So, workers, employees, you have bosses. Sometimes your bosses are saved, sometimes they are unsaved, and regardless, 
your relationship to them is to work as though you are working for the Lord, Colossians chapter 3, 23 and 24. Your job is to work with all of your might, not to just benefit an earthly system or an earthly business, but because you are genuinely working for your Savior, Jesus Christ. Now the train keeps on rolling. We've got our fifth category of commands, dealing with the teaching of godliness. Paul writes, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with, doc, uh, with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. We have covered teachings on godliness pretty extensively in the earlier chapters of this book, and I actually quoted this section in three earlier sermons So we're going to roll through this stop pretty quickly. However, I want to make a a brief stop here, and I want you to never mistake brevity for insignificance. I want you to see that the Lord requires that whoever preaches the word must preach that which accords with godliness. According to verse 4, any preacher who fails to do so is conceited and knows nothing. I recently had a conversation with a couple of men who were representatives of a church Uh, here on Long Island who wanted to come in and speak with me for a little while. Had about a two-hour-long conversation with them, mainly regarding doctrine and theology. And one of the main issues in their church is they do not believe that once you are saved, that it matters how you live at all. That you can live however you want because once you're saved, once you're in the door, sin no longer has any effect. So the people in their church are what I would call licentious. They continue to sin and sin and sin, and there is no one who will ever call them out on it. They just accept it as normal. According to Paul, they are not preaching what is in accord with godliness, and therefore they know nothing. The irony that Paul is getting at here, it's interesting, is that these people think they are brilliant, not just those people that I was meeting with, but, but people who stand in a pulpit and who declare their own thinking. They do so because they think their way is better than your way, and they want to convince you of their way. They think that they are wise, but they are full, fools. They think that they are captivating rhetoric, and their down-to-earth style or modern feel or clever wit proves that they are something, when according to what Paul is saying, they are nothing. It's not how well somebody can communicate. If it was, Paul himself would have been disqualified. He even says in 1 Corinthians when he came, he didn't come with his magnanimous speech. He came in fear and trembling. What makes somebody a good preacher? It's somebody who knows the Lord, knows the Word, preaches the gospel, and teaches that which accords with godliness. I've known a lot of pastors and preachers. But I've never met a pastor or preacher who believes themselves to be conceited and lacking knowledge. Every last one of them that I have ever met thinks they know something. And it's important for us to understand that we as a congregation, you as a member of the church, have a responsibility to be discerning. And Paul is teaching that there are times 
in the church, people will sneak in. They will get into positions of leadership, and they will be failures in this area. And when that happens, there must be correction, and that happens through you. So be on guard. Be watchful. Ensure that what I am saying is what the Word of God is saying, that I am not producing some kind of philosophy of man, that no other preacher or elder who is ever in this pulpit is producing some kind of personal philosophy for you to follow, but that everything they say is in regards to the Word of God and accords with godliness. Which brings us now to our final point of the day, which is money. The last line about these problematic preachers that Paul is bringing up is that they think the pulpit is some kind of a way to get financial gain. They're quite literally in it for the money. Paul immediately contrasts that thinking in verse 6 this way. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. It is not godliness plus wealth or status or fame. It is godliness plus a settled happiness about what God has done for you and in you that is great gain. And then Paul adds an explanation of this in verse 7 by saying, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. When I was growing up, I had a friend, uh, Jason Scobie. His dad was an unbeliever. Um, thankfully, eventually he did come to know the Lord before he died, and he, he was a believer for several years before going home to heaven. But I knew him when he was a vile man running from the cross, hating Christ, and he would often wear shirts that would mock Jason's Christian friends. So I remember going to his house and seeing him wearing a t-shirt that says, he who, wins, or he who dies with the most toys wins. It became one of his most worn and favorite t-shirts. And this man would use that as a way to argue against the idea of eternity and that there is no afterlife. There is no heaven or hell to fear. It's important to understand that he who dies with the most toys will still die. And everything that they have gained, everything that they have earned, everything that they have purchased, everything they have collected, everything they have stored away, every last one of those things is going to belong to someone else. One day, you are going to die. And your car and your house and your garage full of stuff, it's all going to be passed on to someone. Think of the man in Luke 12 that God calls a fool. He collected many things. He tore down his barns and built bigger ones. And God says to him, you fool, tonight your life is required of you, and whose will these things be? Who cares? What's all of this worth? Nothing. You can't take it with you. Instead, we are not supposed to put our hope in those things. We are to be content. Verse 8 says, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. That's a pretty minimal list. That's a pretty short list that he gives. And he says, if you have that, be content. He doesn't include a house on that list. He doesn't include a car on that list. He doesn't include a job on that list. He says, if we have food and clothes, contentment. We are to be content with the very basic needs. Consider how this is seen in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, where it says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Now, before we move an inch farther forward into the money conversation, we should be clear here that nobody... Nobody in this room is poor 
by the standards spoken of in these verses. We should be clear that nobody in this room is poor compared to the standards of most people in the world today. We live in the wealthiest society in the history of the planet. And even compared to those around the globe this morning, you are on the extreme end of the wealth scale. You are immensely blessed with riches that even kings could not have imagined when this text was written. I was studying archaeology back in college, and one of the classes that I had had the, the footprint of what they believe was Solomon's palace, not Solomon's, uh, Saul, King Saul, the first king of Israel, what his palace would have looked like. And I realized that when I was in seminary, living in a rental house, in a poor neighborhood, in a small, small home, the footprint of my house was almost exactly the same size as the footprint of his kingly palace. You live like a king. You can eat what tastes good to you every day. You delight in the meals that you have. You have variety. You can get fruit that doesn't even grow in this country and doesn't grow in this season. You can get what you want by just doing a couple days' work to get it. It is an amazing thing that we have so much abundance. So to, to put in context, nobody here is impoverished. So don't disregard this passage because you find yourself in a lower tax bracket than other people in the room. You're saying to yourself, look, I don't match what my parents had at this age or what they have now, therefore I consider myself to be on the poor end of the spectrum. And furthermore, I want you to see that these warnings have nothing to do with what you even own. It has nothing to do with how much you have. It has everything to do with what you want. Let's look a little closer at verse 9. It says, notice, notice the words that, that I will hammer here. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pangs. Several years ago, I had a good friend who went through a major surgery, and I visited him at the hospital the next day, back when you could still do that before COVID. And when I went to see him, he was not like I expected. I expected him to be sprawled out. I, I don't even know what I was imagining. Maybe a breathing tube, like that he would be like near death from this extreme surgery that took place. Nothing could have been farther from the truth. He was energetic and happy and cracking jokes nonstop and making friends with the neighbor across the aisle from him and making friends with all of the people who worked in his room. What I didn't understand at the time when I walked in, into his hospital room was the fact that he was on an incredible amount of medication. <laughs> and one of the drugs that they had him on was morphine. And the problem is, he really started to like it. And he kept asking for it. Hey, can I just have some more of that stuff? That, I feel so good right now. Can I just have a little bit more of that stuff? And you know what the hospital did? They did the right thing and they cut him off. Was the medication bad? No. It was actually good because it removed his awareness of his pain for a time so that his body could heal. Was it bad? No. It was good for him. Until desire got into the mix and then it was bad. 
Desire started to develop in an unhealthy way, and it was a sign that there needed to be an immediate change. The medicine was not bad. The craving was bad. To put it very simply, money is not bad. People with money are not bad. We are actually taught to be good workers and to be wise investors and that we are to take what God gives us and use it wisely for the benefit of his people and the kingdom. In this very text, we are taught that we are to earn our money and that you are to give to support your pastor. You can't do that if you don't have any money. I was speaking to a friend a couple of years ago who was struggling with this concept of wealth and basically was asking whether or not it's wise to invest, whether it's, whether it's sinful to invest in retirement when you could be giving to missionaries and giving to others. And I said, well, here's the problem. If you do not provide for yourself at the end of your life, then basically what you are doing is you are asking someone else to do that for you. And what you want to do is wisely plan, not just today, but in the future, how you can be generous with what God has given you. It is, and I'm thankful for the desire of his heart for missions and for ministry and for supporting the church. We need to understand that money and the development of wealth is not the problem. The problem is with our own heart when we begin to desire and love and crave wealth. That's what he says results in wandering from the, from the faith. I have known some very poor people in genuine third world countries around the world And these people are on the opposite side of the spectrum of the wealth world. And I have known some people who are impoverished, in extreme poverty, who love money and who crave wealth. It doesn't have anything to do with the dollar amount in your bank. It has everything to do with your heart. It has everything to do with how you stand before the Lord. And he says that the love of money produces pain for you. He uses this really amazing analogy. He says it's like you are stabbing yourself through with many pangs. It's like you're taking a knife and you're stabbing yourself constantly with it. But instead of producing a normal wound, it produces pangs. That's a word we don't use very often. Normally in English when we use that, it's in regards to hunger where your stomach is literally hurting and your body begins to feel immense pain because it's telling you, you need sustenance now. And he says, what you are doing is you are making your cravings worse. By loving money, you just want more and more stuff. You crave everything that the money could possibly get you. And you've probably done this before. When you realize you were going to get a new job or when you realize you're going to get a raise, all of a sudden, everything that seemed financially out of reach for you, that car or maybe that house that you were looking at a couple of years ago, everything that before seemed so far out of reach now seems like something you can attain. And so what happens? You crave the money and you start craving everything else and stabbing yourself through with craving after craving after craving and nothing will satisfy you. With all of this said, I think it's important now that we land with a couple of directives from this point. First, I want you to discern whether or not you have an inappropriate love of money. Your bank account will never satisfy you, and a big retirement account will not bring you peace, and a higher paycheck does not provide you joy. If you are looking for those things in money, you are always, always, always going to be disappointed. Just like every other idol in the world, money is going to make you a lot of promises and provide you nothing. So if you find yourself having an inappropriate relationship with money, if you have a heart that loves it too much, what do you do? 
Start giving it away. Prayerfully find ways to support kingdom causes. When that missionary's car breaks down, pay for it to be fixed. When that youth student needs to go to camp, sponsor them to go. Pay their way. The easiest ways to find your idols are to find the things that you refuse to let go of. Fight the love of money with prayerful generosity. And finally, our heart of contentment and generosity, it comes from a very particular place. Our hearts are changed in regards to money only if and when we come to know and embrace the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 explains it this way, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. How do you stop loving money? It's by seeing that you have something worth much more than that. That you have a treasure far greater than a dollar bill. That you have genuine treasure that can never be taken away from you or damaged or destroyed. You have Jesus Christ. At the cross, Jesus gave you himself. He died and he rose so that you might have him and he might have you. And knowing Christ should transform your love of any and everything else. Nothing compares to the relationship that you have with him. And he says that he has set up for you a a promise in heaven that is unfading and undefiled. Nothing compares to that. I love how the old song says it, that the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. How? How does that happen? In the light of of His glory and grace. Do you love money too much? It's because you love Christ too little. And if you begin to know Him, to see Him, to pursue Him, to find grace in Him, that is when your love of other things will come into balance. That you would love Him first. That you would put Him above all things. And then everything else will fall in line. Now, thank you for sticking with me. I know that we've covered a great deal of information this morning. I really appreciate your attentiveness. Let's ask now that the Lord would establish the work of our hands. Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, we are so grateful that you give us so many commands. But we we are thankful, God, that we are not saved by them. We are thankful that we are doing them because you have already saved us. That if we are in Christ, that we have a new way to live. And I thank you, God, for giving us clarity about how we are to live. Please, God, cause us to carry out these commands faithfully. May we have wisdom in the way that we love and lead and care for this flock, those who are elders. And I pray, God, for those who are in the congregation, that they would be wise in the way that they establish their leaders here. And I pray that they would be wise in relation to alcohol and wise in relation to church discipline and wise in relation to money and wise in the way that they pursue godliness. And God, all of these things matter to you. I thank you that you have provided for us this wisdom in your word. And now I pray, God, that as we go, we would have the desire to love Jesus by doing what you have called us to do. We pray this is in his precious name. Amen.